Section 30 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 4. 1. She had slept, and in the train next day on her way to London, she was still able to rest. Her body was weak but safe. After the alternation of sharp, writhing pain and dull stupor, which had been her existence for the last two days, this was almost happiness. In the barn-like Waverley station, wherein the passengers seemed like so many strewn grains from the threshing, she had slipped clear of her trouble. She, too, was now but a grain, a speck whereas last night her heart had filled the universe with its heavy and clamorous throbbing. In this restored proportion, she had only her infinitesimal part in the whole, and it was enough. Behind her lay great misery. Before her, in London, she knew that more awaited her. But she might make of this journey a quiet breathing space, a narrow oasis in which for an hour she could forget the choking desert. Having no stomach yet for everyday victuals, she had bought herself a little, rare basketful of fruit. Here was a knot of grapes, the colour of glacier water. Here were two granadillas, passion-fruit flowers, with their tough rinds full of luscious, translucent globules. Here were almonds to crunch, a white-fleshed apple into which to drive one's teeth, a peach from which the velvet-scented skin came glibly away. Leaning back idly in the corner of an empty compartment, she watched the wheeling countryside. It was a poet's May morning, one of those mornings when white, white clouds are piled up and gleaming, and the sunshine lies like snow along the hedges. Young lambs that might themselves have been snow leavings were scattered upon the emerald grass. A faint, low haze of hyacinths hovered in the bare woods. In one small station, through which the train passed without stopping. The steep banks were rich with crocuses that had already been split and ravished, with crocuses that were flaming their lives out like passionate lamps. Joanna sat on that side of the train next to the corridor, and every now and then, passing between her and the Lothians, some passenger would blot out a whole brown woodland or amber-coloured field or bare hill of palest amethyst. To her at the moment... One broad obscuring back was like another. She hardly realised, therefore, that a particular pair of tweed shoulders returned again and again, until they came at length to a hesitating standstill opposite the door of her compartment. Even when the door opened, and a man's brown face looked in with inquiring friendliness, and a lean hand was stretched out, and her name warmly uttered, even then it was several moments before she realised that the stranger was her old playmate, Bob Rankin. Joanna, it is you. Why, Bob? He wrung her hand and sat down opposite, smiling, taking off his hat, looking at her with evident pleasure. Joanna, too, looked at him. He was the same old Bob. After the first shock of shyness and strangeness, she saw that he had not really changed. He was bigger, older, and certain marks of worldly assurance were as clear as the deep sun-wrinkles that surrounded his eyes. But the African sun had not burned away the spiritual indecision lurking about his attractive lips, 
nor informed the almost callow innocence of his gaze. Do come into our carriage, he begged her schoolboyishly. My father is there with me. I thought and thought it must be you, but your hat hid your eyes and I wasn't positive. I wonder you knew me at all, said Joanna. I am changed more than you, I think. Am I not changed? Yes and no, he replied. I felt a bit afraid of the dashing-looking female I first caught sight of, but now that I have a good look at you, I can see the old Joanna. I wish you'd take your hat off. Would you have known me? Anywhere. Yet you didn't when I first came in and stuck out my paw at you. No, I was half asleep. Asleep? You didn't look it. Thinking, then. Ah. He searched her face curiously as she rose, and they went together to the other carriage, where Dr. Rankin sat reading, with one plaid about his shoulders and another over his knees. The old minister looked fragile indeed, but he had maintained a brittle alertness. He smiled his wintry yet rather sweet smile at Joanna, and made her sit by him while he asked about her doings and about her brothers, mentioning both by name, and about Georgie and Georgie's baby. It was a clear and pleasing point of vanity with him, this individual remembrance which he kept of each boy and girl who had ever had a place in his flock, and Joanna was the more surprised, as in her childhood he had never seemed to them to notice their existence. Certainly his former bleakness was gone. Time, sometimes generous, had given him with his white locks a distinction quite denied to his middle age, and it was perhaps his own appreciation of this that made him genial. And your mother, he said presently, I was sorry, very sorry to hear of her death. Your mother, my dear, was a good woman. Yes, said Joanna. I never knew a better and she had courage, a rare gift, a gift I esteem not less but more as I grow older. True, theologically, we did not always see eye to eye, your mother and myself, he twinkled. So they talked mostly of the early days in Glasgow, of St. Jude's Church, of the Boyds, of this one's death, that one's marriage, the disgrace of that other, and the old man was lively in his interest. As for the young man, he sat smoking and watching, seldom speaking. In answer to Joanna's questions, he told her a little about his work, and she divined that he loved the part of the world where it was. Laconically, as he spoke, there was enthusiasm in his description of a certain high mountain which dominated the landscape visible from his bungalow. But if Bob took no great part in the conversation, he was all the more intent in listening to every least remark of Joanna's. When they parted at King's Cross, he was emphatic upon the strange coincidence of their meeting. He had meant, he said, the very next day to have sought her out at Chapel Court. Might he still come? He was to be, at the least, a fortnight in London. Joanna could not but see that his eyes were full of eager reminiscence. 2. But at the Moon's house there was trouble. Roddy, who had fallen ill suddenly, was to be operated upon next day. Edwin Moon was white with anxiety. Trissy was grey. He was bowed more than ever. She was more than ever upright. Dreadfully upright she was, with her shoulders thrown back and her desperate head held high. They had taken the liberty, they told Joanna upon her arrival, when the bad news was poured out, of using her bedroom as the sick chamber. 
It was the most suitable in the house, and they could not bear to have the child taken to a nursing home. Already the stripped walls were hung with sheets drenched in carbolic, and the scrubbed kitchen table stood shockingly in the middle of a bare floor. During the week that followed, Joanna, sleeping on the sofa in her sitting-room, gave every minute of her time and every ounce of her strength to the racked household. She cooked, ran errands, found a substitute for Trissy at the laundry, interviewed customers downstairs for Mr. Moon, helped to tend the unwitting Edwina. And so long as all went well with Roddy, she was content. While the distraction of illness lasted, her own essential life stayed apart, suspended. It was a respite. And the operation was a success. Roddy emerged from it his entire bright self. It seemed there was no further cause for anxiety. Yet Trissy's face remained tense and ashen as before, nor would Edwin leave the bedside. That night, though she was very weary, Joanna lay sleepless. With Roddy out of danger, her own troubles were again unleashed, and now, like hounds, they threatened her. She stayed broad awake till after sunrise. Then, when she had newly fallen into a drowse, came a touch on her shoulder. She sat up instantly. It was Trissy, who said a low word and was gone. Joanna leapt up, threw on her dressing gown and followed. An hour before dawn, nearly twenty hours after the surgeon's work was satisfactorily completed, the child had begun to look strange about the eyes. Then he had slipped by slow, obstinate degrees into unconsciousness. Now he was in a coma. Coma was the word that had remained with Joanna when Trissy had spoken and vanished. It was a most uncommon case, declared the puzzled physician. The surgeon, having performed his task and being busy elsewhere, did not appear. But he thought they would pull a little chap through. Trissy's eyes widened in murderous disbelief till the white glared all round the irises, but she carried out every direction submissively and well, winning the doctor's praise. There never had been such a nurse. As for Edwin Moon, through each unfolding horror of activity around the bed, he only sat with his head hanging, looking on without hope, quite passive. Twice in the course of the day they managed to rouse the boy so that he uttered conscious and natural cries of protest, and after the second of these times he lay a while quiet, and was his composed self as if he would recover. The father raised his head then, and gazed into his son's open eyes, and Roddy, as if he had been waiting for this, smiled back at him contentedly. So they would have remained, but the mother bent forward, thrusting herself between them in her terrible jealousy. How does my sonny feel now? she asked, curbing her frenzy with an effort that almost killed her, into a tone of gentle ordinariness. At this, Roddy only moved his head restlessly, searching past his mother with feeble impatience for his father's lost face. How's my sonny? she repeated, this time a fine jet of agony breaking through in her voice. Much better, thank you. Roddy spoke with a politeness he used to strangers and again he sought his father's eyes. Trissy turned away. Her face was like some crude, grinning mask of tragedy. But the child had scarcely spoken before consciousness flickered out again. An hour, two hours, of unbroken stupor followed, do what they would. And then the small, square fingertips began to curve strangely outwards, 
like young leaves that are too near a flame, and he grew cold, and one long, long breath was the last he would ever draw. The mother, her eyes wide and unseeing, stayed by the dead boy, and the father, having composed the small limbs, wandered slowly from the room. Three. It was on the night before the burial that Trissy found relief in a stream of incoherent speech which seemed as though it had been pent up for ages and now could never have an end. Edwin, she told Joanna, had gone out and would probably walk the streets till morning as he had done many a time before. This was not their first trouble. What else indeed but trouble had they known these many years? She sat on the little rocking chair in the archway room that midnight, and her story, or what she thought was her story, came from her in a bitter confusion of words. When all had been said, Joanna knew little more about the moons than she had already gathered half-consciously by living with them. She learned indeed for the first time that moon was not their real name, and that the name they had foregone was one well thought of in a northern county where once they had lived prosperously. But what Edwin had done, saving that it had been an act of criminal folly by which he had nothing to gain and everything to lose, all Trissy's incontinence did not disclose. He had done it, declared Trissy, when he was not himself, for he had never been himself since the day when his pet Edwina, from being a lovely, lively child of two, had within an hour become the thing she now was. Was it any wonder if, crazed by this blow, he had thought for a time that certain babies were better not to be born into the world at all? Be that as it might, such thoughts had led to a disaster from which his life and hers had never recovered. Ill luck had dogged them ever since. Here was the burden of Trissy's lament. Here, in the steady, incorrigible tracking down by misfortune, it was Edwin whom the pursuing furies had marked for their prey. She, Trissy, had been born, she was sure of it, for good fortune. It was this knowledge that had bred in her a bitter envy of Joanna's youth and freedom, an envy she now begged to be forgiven. She had always been known as a lucky person, and was convinced she would be still, were it not for Edwin. It was Edwin who had spoiled her life, who had cheated her of her happiness, who had brought upon her one trouble after another, and he had done it in all innocence. Therein lay his offence, any wickedness. Again and again Trissy wildly repeated this phrase, any wickedness, she could have forgiven him, for then she could have cut herself off from him. If he were a guilty man, she could have gone free, been happy. Once, just before the birth of Roddy, she had tried to leave him, and he had told her she was free to do the best for herself, but he was an innocent man. It was only that fate had marked him as a prey, and how could she leave this Jonah, this victim, this man set apart for vengeance, by whose side nothing could prosper? So the wife raved and wept, but on the day of the burial, Joanna came nearer to the true heart of the mystery. In the church, and afterwards by the graveside, she saw how the strange couple clung each to the other and there was that in their clinging which was more than the ordinary holding together for comfort of married mourners. To Joanna it seemed to proclaim their secret from the housetops. The moons, like Feemy and Jimmy, possessed what she in her own unfulfilled being 
must envy. Four. Now she would have to go back to her own life. But the day before, it had seemed as if she might live only in Trissy's life and in entire devotion to Trissy's unhappiness. Now she knew that Trissy did not need her. The husband and wife had cast her out by the grave. She had no part with them. She must go on again alone, with what was no longer a life, but only a dying and a denial. So it was that in the weeks that followed, Roddy's death ceased to cause her any personal grief. It became merely another incident in the recession of all life from her. For days on end she was shorn of herself, shorn of the world, shorn of the old assured existence for which her mother at one end and Lewis at the other had supremely stood. She was denuded even of the warm and exquisite fleece of memory. She had no past, no living present, no conceivable future. But under all her deathliness was one grain of faith that death must be fulfilled to the utmost before any new birth can be. She lay abandoned, waiting in a perfection of emptiness. Five. But to die is not so easy. To die, that is, the death in which is clenched the seed of a new birth. There are pangs in it of false resurrection, dreadful like the return of Lazarus. As in the death of the body, the will revives time after time and fights. Appalled and faithless, the consciousness struggles in the very act of dissolution to be again what it was, to escape its appointed re-entry into the dark womb of extinction. In these weeks, there were mornings when Joanna woke full of annoying malaise for Lewis. Then all her memories, fiendish but clad like angels, would leap to their deathly work. All the old lies would raise their plausible flat heads, denying the possibility of true renewal. Back, back, back she must go into safety, back to haven, back to the known system which swung securely between the psalm-singing sunset faith of her father's and the exquisite underworld of moonlight and falling leaves wherein Lewis had his dwelling. Resignation, renunciation, sacrifice, these thrust forward their false lovely faces, and all their pleadings were for the revival of self-insistence under the mask of immolation. For even in extremis a choice is left, and the will has its part. Joanna had lost Lewis, but there was still a way in which she might refuse to go from him. The very circumstances of their love which had kept them apart for months at a time, the fact that in her dealings with him she had been clear of pettiness, his assurance in the train that he had not so much changed toward her as broken down in himself, all these offered her that way of death in life which is chosen every day that passes by people of her nature. She could be faithful to Lewis. She could refuse to forget and to go on. With loyal, obstinate submissiveness, she could turn her life into a shrine. She had seen the faces of women who had done this. Was it not the best way when one had so deeply committed oneself? It was not the way of the new birth, but it lay at hand. It showed the signpost of authority. One could travel it and not yield up one's will. 
or on other days a different brood of devils would crowd in upon her. These had features less like Julie's than the last, and more like Lewis's. They were full of pleasantry and mocking reasonableness. Why take so tragically, they asked, what was probably only one of her lover's bad moods? It was a question of time and good sense, good sense being what she had chiefly lacked. He had behaved badly, no doubt, but she might have managed him if she hadn't been so painfully in earnest. She might still, with time, coolness and skill, win him afresh. Or quite suddenly she would find herself caught up in a whirlpool of hatred and all-encompassing spite. Why should Lewis go free while she was thus tormented? She would then ask. Could she not make him suffer, persecute him, even kill him? Why not? As man to desperate woman, his would be the disadvantage. He was spared by her scruples, not by her fears. It was no matter what became of her, so that she could wreak herself once and for all upon him. When she dragged him out before his world that he so feared, ranted forth her mind at him, showed him like a beaten cur to his wife and his sons, and his son's wife, made the seemliness he so treasured impossible for him forthwith, she could complete the work by killing herself. What was to prevent her? Nothing. Nothing, save that in spite of all, she knew she was finally prompted in respecting Lewis's obduracy. Something whispered that it was not all cowardice for him to have cast her off, that beneath the maddening incidents of their parting he had taken a step which was intrinsically decent. Was not his action in harmony with the unknown forces that had long been driving her out of his world? What if the break between them had sprung from his refusal to drag her further into his own long dying? So she took no decisive action, and the only outcome of all her stormy hours was some letters. She could not help writing letters to Lewis that were by turns exalted, self-abasing, passionate, reasonable, threatening, and simply appealing. Lewis replied by one letter only. You must allow me to act, he wrote at last, as I think best. Believe me, I'm saving you from yourself, as well as, in another way, saving myself from you. I don't want to see you, I won't. It could serve no purpose except to hurt us both, and what's the use of that? I haven't exactly changed in my feeling toward you. I meant every word, and more, that I ever spoke to you. You know that well enough, I expect. There will never be anyone else to count. There never was anyone else that meant at all the same as you have meant, and I suppose still mean, to me. It may seem strange to you when I say I care every bit as much as I ever have, possibly more. I confess it seems strange to me. Certainly I didn't expect anything of the kind when we began. But something has gone dead in me, Joanna. I can't go on. That's what I realised on the journey to Edinburgh when I was so awfully tired. Quite suddenly, once and for all, I realised it. I can't go on. And in this of ours, we must go on or make an end. Don't you agree? As I see things now, it has been tug and tug between us this long time past, perhaps the whole time. If I'd had it in me, I would have gone off with you long ago. You always wanted that, I know. 
and once or twice I have fancied that I could, but I know now that I never could have. It would only have been a sickening disaster for both of us if I had tried. Perhaps I was too old when you got me. You don't know yet what that feels like, and you ought to be thankful. Anyhow, there it is. It has wanted courage for me to cut loose from you and stay behind. You must have the courage to cut loose from me and go on. I believe you can do this. But whatever you do, don't make things ugly and regrettable at the end by asking the impossible of me. I'm sure I've done you no harm, and I hope I may have done you good. Let me alone, my dear, with my memories. Be sure a man never had sweeter ones. Be sure I wish you well, and am forever grateful. Your old lover, Lewis. If many a time in his love-making Joanna had been driven to make excuses to herself for her lover, in his withdrawal he rose far beyond any need of apology. If she indeed had it in her to go forward into a new, unimagined life, here in this letter would lie her dearest trophy from the old. 6. During the futile weeks that followed, she even took to visiting fortune-tellers. It was a tribe that had never before caught her attention, but the days must be passed somehow. Though she despised herself for it, and had little enough money to spare from necessities, she would put down the preposterous fee eagerly for the false excitement it brought, would wait trembling in the frowsy antechamber of the oracle, and once, when some hag of the Edgware Road hinted at what might be construed into a marriage after many years with Lewis, she went home with a lighter step, to know within the hour that it was a shameful drug. This, however, did not prevent her from repeating the same folly, and she continued fitfully to go from one soothsayer to another. Arsy a dog, now a fair man, droned the sibyl. This time she was rich in her appointments, and herself young, large and comely as a stooled ox. Arsy a medium fair man, still young, yes, the first love, his thoughts are toward you. There was a break, both were at fault. Years have passed, but he has been faithful, and now his heart is set toward his first love. I see happiness, money, children, two boys, no, a boy and a girl, seas to be crossed, many storms in the past, but happiness close at hand. She sank back in her chair, as if utterly exhausted drew the black velvet over her glass ball and closed her eyes, and Joanna was impressed. During the last fortnight, Bob Rankin had continually sought her company. Noticing her drooping spirits, he had insisted more than once upon her going out with him to dinner in town, and had taken her to a theatre afterwards. And that very afternoon, on her return to Chapel Court, she met him coming dejectedly away after a vain call there. In a week he would be leaving England, so she had to allow him to turn back with her and to sit talking in her room. She had only to look at him to know how very easily she might make the crystal gazer's prophecy come true. She was tempted. She did not love Bob, but he still had the power to stir a curious tenderness in her. Also, it was dangerously sweet and flattering, 
especially coming upon the heels of such humiliation as could hardly be borne, to have stumbled upon the fulfilment of an old dream. After all these years, Bob wanted her. There would not only be safety with him, but as well a kind of newness which promised much. What of the mountain he could see from his bungalow, the African veld, different skies, dark faces, yet another escape? And with Bob, however fond a wife she might become, she knew that she would be able to keep her essential being intact, a shrine for Lewis to the end. But Joanna's will, which had so often served her badly, served her well in this, and that day she put the temptation aside. Better never be than be so falsely, foisting at the same time falseness upon another. So she turned from him, and denied him every chance of speaking, and the next week Bob left England as he had come. 7. She visited no more palmists. She did nothing, and went nowhere, neither worked nor read. The long-preserved shell of habit had crumbled at last. But although acquiescence might mean open ruin, she could only wait passively. She could not move without some vital prompting. It was not till the middle of June that the first hint of direction came to her, the first faint summons bidding her live anew, and as once before, in the life that was now dead and discarded, it came in the shape of a letter from Aunt Purdy. I am passing, she wrote, through a time of hideous, lonely suffering. The powers of darkness in the heavens above are doing all they can to kill my heart and brain. It is dreadful to be like me, open to invisible influences, for by the same means I am both aided and hindered. Pray for Auntie, whose heart is almost breaking, and who is presently without love or hope of any kind, and feels miserably conquered. Come to see her if you possibly can. To this Joanna sent no answer, but she moved out of her lethargy and made simple preparations for a journey to Italy. To raise the money she found she must sell some of her treasures, but she did so without a pang. Not that there was any excitement or expectancy in her, as there had been when she had responded to her aunt's first summons. Now she was simply obedient to the seeming accident through which her new, untried life could stir. Her will no longer rose hard and possessive, driving her hither and thither. Her will now was merely the helm by which her frail bark might once more be steered to float upon a stream of life. But what other power had urged her to respond, whither the stream might bear her, she did not ask. Not that even now she was quite beyond the reach of a deathly backwash. In the late afternoon of the day before her departure, when nothing remained to do, she found herself overwhelmed once more by the old sadness. There was the deep chair in which Lewis and she had so often kissed and held each other. Here was a case she had come upon while packing, full of his letters and drawings. There on the mantelpiece was the Tanagra figurine, with blown-out drapery, which he had brought her from Paris, declaring it was like her. All the little room spoke of him, and of what he stood for. And mingling with these passionate memories were thoughts of Roddy, who was dead, of Ollie, who was soon going to Canada, to make the third in a patched-up reconciliation between her parents. Wrenched with sobbing, 
she lay back in the shadowed room. She cried a long time, so that when at length she was done, the evening had drawn greyly in. But she did not stir to light the lamp, and even when rain began to fall, beating more and more heavily against the black window panes, she had no thought of drawing the curtains. There seemed no reason why she should ever move again. From shaking storm she had lapsed into stillness. Never before had she been sunk so deep in the blessed wells of nothingness. How many minutes or hours passed then, she did not know. But the room had long been quite dark when a sound from downstairs made her slip free of her abandonment in the low chair and stand alert, listening. Her ears served her so beautifully at that moment that she could separate each from each, as an embroideress might separate a skein of coloured silken threads, all the faint vibrations of sound in the house. She heard Trissy open the door and parley with a visitor. It was impossible to distinguish words, but she knew immediately that Lawrence's was the low voice asking if she was in, and she could supply the answer in Trissy's doubtful murmur. The next moment she was leaning over the wide-topped old banister of the staircase. I'm here, she heard her own voice assuring Trissy, and almost before she had spoken, there was Lawrence standing before her. On the little dark landing they could see each other's faces as pale blurs only. How wet you are, she exclaimed as he touched her hand with his, all cold with the rain, and she could smell the rain-soaked wool of his clothes. Yes, it's pouring. He followed her into the room while she groped for matches and lighted the lamp, and now, instead of her ears, it was her hands that moved with a new perfection and certitude that almost frightened her. The wick caught evenly all around, and as the twin flames sprang up bright and smokeless in the funnel, Lawrence's eyes were upon her. Her face, she knew then, must be ravaged and unsightly from her long crying. At any former time of her life, above all with Lewis, she would have shaded the unmerciful light hastily, turning her face aside the while. But this evening, with Lawrence, she had no more impulse to conceal it than she had to display it for his sympathy. Raising her head, she returned his look starkly, and thus they both stood for a long second with the revealing lamp between them. Yes? Joanna asked him. That he would only have come to her on some urgent errand she knew of herself, and if she had not known it, his white, fixed face would have told her that something decisive had happened to him. But he had seen her now, and in his eyes his own trouble made way for hers. What's wrong? he demanded, instead of replying to her question. Nothing is wrong. I've been crying. I'm all right now. I'm going to Italy tomorrow. It seemed odd to her that he should show no surprise. To Italy you are going, he said. I'm going away too. That's what I came tonight to say. Joanna was the one to be astonished. His way of speaking was strange. Where are you going? she asked, wondering. I don't know yet. Nor for how long. North, probably. It really doesn't matter. Though I think I'm about due a holiday. I'm afraid you are ill. You look ill, said Joanna anxiously. There was that kind of sharpness in his features which often presages severe illness. But he assured her brusquely that it was only a cold hanging about him. How long will you be in Italy? She did not know. She begged him to hurry home and change his clothes. 
goodbye then, Lawrence said, holding out his hand. It was mostly to tell you that I was going away that I came. I couldn't help coming, and now I feel you are going south for the same reason I am going north. You have to come to an end, really come to an end at last. Is it so? Joanna nodded. She was full of wonder. Yet it seemed natural that he should know about her. I have been at an end now for ages, she said. The thing is, is there any new beginning? For you I feel there must be. For me, I see none, replied Lawrence. I'm simply down and out. Last time we talked I was glib enough. I thought I knew what it was, but I didn't. Would he stay? Joanna asked him shyly. Would he sit down a while? Would talking be any use? But he shook his head. So she went downstairs to the door with him. The yard was spouting with rain, and rivulets of rain coursed under the archway. As Lawrence and she clasped hands, Joanna loved the sound of it. Endings have to be gone through by each one alone, said he. But I doubt if ever a true beginning was solitary. And with that, he was gone into the dark, slanting curtain of the rain. As she went slowly back to her room, she dared hardly believe in the virgin jet of promise that bubbled tinily, limpidly up through her own nothingness. End of section 30